Hello and welcome to the second instalment of The Thinkers, the Monocle Weekly's new series of thoughtful debates that will take a deeper look at the way things are and potentially will be over coming months and years. I'm Andrew Muller. Today we're going to discuss the COVID-19 pandemic and how it might change our world and our lives in the longer term. And to do that, I'm joined by quite the stellar cast. First up, Elizabeth Anderson, Professor of Philosophy and Women's Studies at the University of Michigan. Elizabeth's writing has focused on the ethics and value of work and markets in the modern era and contemporary notions of equality. She was awarded the MacArthur Genius Grant last year and received a Guggenheim Fellowship in 2013. Also joining us is Aona Datta, Professor in Urban Geography at University College London and research into the future of cities and the urbanisation of the Global South. Her work into smart cities and inequality in India has been referenced broadly in the international press and Aona spoke on these matters at the World Urban Forum this year. And also Eric Klinenberg, Professor of Social Science at New York University, whose books on sociology and urban life have appealed to academics and more casual readers. His writing has appeared in Rolling Stone, The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine and The London Review of Books alongside other academic journals, and he's written extensively on the new phenomenon of living alone and the socio-economic repercussions of disasters. Welcome all. Well, first up, as is usually the case with major crises, COVID-19 has been roughest on those who were already most vulnerable, whether nations or individuals. But has it taught us anything about inequality that we didn't already know? And might it potentially be teaching us some lessons about how we might fix this? Elizabeth, I'll come to you first on this. In, in in terms of what COVID-19 has revealed about inequality, has anything surprised you? I don't think I find anything particularly surprising for me as an academic who's been studying labor issues for a long time. But I do think the treatment of socially necessary workers in America has made vivid the degree to which people who are doing indispensable work are treated as disposable themselves. And that's something that has aroused the consciousness of a lot of Americans who previously were simply taking ordinary work, doing relatively drudgy jobs. It's aroused their consciousness about how poorly such workers are treated. Just to follow that up, Elizabeth, you're quite right to point out that there has been over the last few months a renewed and obviously overdue appreciation of those people who do things like drive our trains and buses and bring us the stuff we order and collect the stuff we throw away. But do you have any optimism that this might last, that this might actually mean tangible changes for those people, like, for example, them being paid and treated better? The only thing that can create mass structural change is demonstrations in the streets. You need a social movement to pressure legislators to change the laws. But that's, we're seeing rising labor strikes and demonstrations alongside Black Lives Matter. They're waking up to issues about both race and class that have been suppressed for a long time in the United States. Hey, and to ask you a, a similar question with a, a broader frame of reference, if we look at what we have learned and are learning about global inequality, especially as the pandemic starts to take root in poorer countries, has anything we've learned about global inequality leapt out at you? I think 
think I would say the same thing in terms of it wasn't surprising as a person looking into inequalities, particularly in the way that technology has been used to deal with this crisis. I think what's uh, what's interesting from a global perspective is that vast numbers of people and populations are on the other side of the digital divide. So you have people who are not even counted within the institutional statistics and measurements of who's contacted COVID and who's been infected and who goes where, because these are the people who cannot be traced without mobile phones or without access to internet. So in that sense, I think the Global South presents particular peculiar situation where kind of a universalized strategy of contact tracing and infection rates is crafted from how digital technologies perform and penetrate and yet vast numbers of the global south population are actually in the informal economy their livelihoods are not counted their lives are not counted and they themselves cannot make themselves count because the terms of counting and engagement with the spread of the virus has been largely through technology. And in that sense, it has exacerbated inequalities that were there earlier, uh, all the class, the gender, the caste, religious inequalities that were heavily embedded within the poorer populations, uh, hawkers, drivers, security guards, domestic help, and so on, who were basically surviving on a day-to-day basis on livelihoods that were kind of cash in hand. And they were, their struggles has been exacerbated with the COVID virus because they cannot follow social distancing in the same way that middle classes can follow. Working from home is an impossibility because their livelihoods are spread on the street in public places. The exchanges, the transactions are in public places. They don't have a workplace or a home infrastructure to perform their livelihoods. So in that sense, I think COVID particularly affects people who have already been unequal and also digitally unequal. So that's what I would say in a global south is is much more particular. Eric, to bring you in, in in terms of either diagnosing aspects of global inequality and hopefully even repairing them through the prism of COVID-19, does it strike you as a factor that this is a global crisis, that rich countries are facing pretty much the same problem as poor countries? In, In previous disease outbreaks or previous pandemics, there's often Ebola seems like the obvious compare and contrast. This is a pandemic which took root largely in West and Central Africa and the rich world was able to respond largely because the rich world wasn't trying to deal with the same problem. In the sense that we are all trying to grapple with whatever resources we have available with the same problem, is that potentially going to lead to a more equal world or likely to lead to an even less equal one? I love the question because you're saying, you know, maybe in this pandemic, we're all in the same boat. Hmm. Uh, You know, we, we have shared vulnerability in some ways that's manifestly the case, except many countries that are experiencing this crisis uh, as devastatingly lethal, where the leaders and a good portion of the population refuse to believe that they're in a boat at all. There's no question that the vulnerability of the United States and the United Kingdom have been shocking. Just last year, Johns Hopkins University and The Economist magazine jointly produced a global health security index, and they ranked the U.S. as the most prepared for a a pandemic and the U.K. as the second most prepared for a pandemic, where the U.S. and the U.K. rank now is, you know, one and two 
maybe with Brazil and India are up there as well as the nations that have blown this and that have invited more suffering and more death. And so I can't fully answer your question about what comes next because I think we're still in the process of um, you know, making sense of, of what's happening. And to go back to Liz's point about uh, the social movement here, what will happen in the next months and years uh, is that there will be a fight over the meaning of what we're experiencing right now. Uh, and, and the way that fight goes, the way the fight over interpretation uh, and over response goes is going to determine what comes next. Elizabeth, to return to that point about the protest, which you, you did mention earlier, did it strike you that the global spread of the protests following the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis on May 25th, that the inequalities we're talking about, were they a catalyst for those protests? Was it that the protests were about more than just the death of George Floyd? Well, they were fundamentally about the pervasiveness of racism in policing in the criminal justice system. But that is not separable from things like the criminalization of poverty. There is a class element to this. The fact that people are also systematically targeted for police harassment and don't have the same kind of respectful treatment that well-off white people feel entitled to and usually receive at the hands of police. In a way, racism is the way it states practices classism. It's, it's a fundamental way it does so. And there's also, that's part of the global economic order as well. The whole global economic order in the 19th century was founded on European imperialism, which is an essentially racist project. And so the demonstrations in the United States are resonating across the world in virtue of globalized racism, which is also a form of class inequality as well. So I, I see these issues as deeply linked. Ayanna, just before we move off what we've learned about inequality, because it's an aspect of inequality that relates to what we're going to talk about next, which is about how we work and how our work impacts on our home lives. Are we learning anything we didn't previously know about gender inequality? Specifically, what I guess I'm wondering is, will a potential long-term adaptation of home working just disadvantage women all over again? That's a really good question because uh, we're all now working from home and we have uh, homeschooling to do plus work from home. So in, in a sense, I think gender is uh, where you are in that uh, continuum, really. And I think, yes, certainly particular gender identities will have a longer struggle than some others. And it particularly, I think it's more to do with what your gender relationships are within the home and the outside. So if you have been largely responsible for children's um, schooling and, and, you know, taking care of domestic duties, then yes, it will have a stronger impact on those. But I think also gender in terms of, we tend to forget that in, particularly in the global south, most of the poorer women are also working three shifts. So they're, they're in home and they're uh, at work. And they're also always often mobilizing to claim particular kinds of services from the state. So you, you'll see a lot of the social movements are being led by women. And so I think in, in that context, we will see a, a kind of the burdens on women to fulfill their roles increasing with, with COVID, but also then the women, poorer women particularly, being having the struggles much more exacerbated because they've lost their livelihoods. And often they are the ones who are the only 
sole wage earners in the family. But there's also kind of invisible impact, I think, which uh, it's very hard to measure and count, and that is the increase in domestic violence, which uh, many people are talking about, but it's very, very difficult to actually see uh, the actual impacts of, of that sort of increase because domestic violence anyway was quite invisible. And in a context where social distancing rules have increased and uh, women are finding harder to leave the home, the tendency of many feminist organizations is to say, well, it has actually increased, but women are also much more reluctant to make complaints and contact support services because the perpetrator of the violence is sitting at home with them. So you will see that sort of kinds of increases and, and it's very, very complex picture that is emerging at the moment. The other thing also is women's fulfilling their gender roles and what impact it has on younger generations. Because uh, in, again, I'm, I'm speaking from an Indian context where homeschooling has become almost the norm now for the past few months, but it's the poorer children who are actually being left out of education altogether because private schools have very quickly adapted to online schooling whereas the state schools the government funded public schools do not have the resources to do online education and children in poorer homes do not have the digital resources and infrastructures to actually even log in and get education so the gendered burdens then in terms of imparting education to the children and to younger generations is also very highly exacerbated um, so yeah, there are, there are several kind of impacts that are both visible and invisible that is a gendered thing. And the last thing I'd say is the impact on the LGBTQIA uh, social groups who've already been pretty persecuted, pretty marginalized. And I know since the lockdown happened, several organizations are trying to mobilize together to provide them with relief and food rations and support services. Um, sex workers have been particularly affected because here you have a society which criminalizes these kinds of occupations. And when they are vulnerable and marginalized, there's less of a tendency to provide them with support. And so civil society mobilizations around helping them has also been pretty pronounced as a result. Okay, well, let's move along from that subject because most people listening to this, even if they've avoided getting ill, will have had their lives significantly disrupted by the pandemic. And most people don't much care for disturbances to their routine. Sometimes, however, being compelled to adapt to something disagreeable can have pleasantly surprising results. So is it possible that some everyday behaviours might be being changed for the better? Let's talk first of all about isolation and about working at home as we just were. Eric, you literally wrote the book on this, specifically Going Solo, The Extraordinary Rise and Surprising Appeal of Living Alone. Does it strike you that what we're seeing in people adapting to homeworking or extending homeworking, is it that much of a jolt or is this just a sudden acceleration of a trend that was already underway? I would say that this is a major jolt. And you should know that this book I wrote, Going Solo, documents what really is probably the most significant uh, demographic change of the last 50 years that we've failed to fully reckon with. And that is that for the first time in the history of our species, enormous numbers of people are living alone and for long periods of time during their lives. The thing is, what I discovered is that living alone is, generally speaking, a very social experience. People who live alone are more likely to spend time with friends and with neighbors than people who are married. They're heavy users of public gathering spaces, you know, libraries and diners and pubs and gyms. They are very engaged in the world. And what has been so disruptive and difficult about the pandemic is that it turns people who are living alone socially 
uh, into isolates. And it has also created enormous stress and pressure for people who are living with others. You know, I guess what I've been saying is this is a very hard time to live alone, uh, but it's also just a hard time to live. And so I think that by all means, we have been in a phase where technology companies have encouraged us to spend more time on our screens and less time in public areas. And the drive for efficiency keeps some people uh, there and at home more and more. That said, it's my overriding uh, sense from the interviews I've done so far that people would much rather go back into the world and re-engage. And one of the things about this moment is it's given us all time to stop and look more carefully at the way we live, at the things we take for granted, at who does the work at home, how that is distributed, the value of gathering places, the value of social life. And so, you know, my sense is that one of the surprises coming out of this is that there has been a flowering of mutual aid networks in the US, the UK, and around the world, you know, people who recognize that their governments were failing and that they would help each other out at a time when we're polarized and divided. Uh, that has been a welcome sign. I think there's been a, a surge in solidarity, which gets expressed in the demonstrations that we've been discussing. The demonstrations for racial justice have been so striking in the US because they have really been multiracial, cross-generational demonstrations. They are not just uh, confined to poor minority neighborhoods. They are in the central squares and affluent districts of cities around the United States. And so I think there are some extraordinary things happening as a result of this. And I think what's extraordinary about this moment is that it's the first time in our lives, at least in my life, where it feels as if everything really is up for grabs. We are probably on the precipice of some major social changes. And what's scary is that they could go in either direction. You know, you could see the change being a change towards less democracy, more authoritarianism, more repression of people of color and poor people. But you could also see the change becoming a far more progressive change, leading to emancipation, to a Green New Deal, to kinds of racial justice that seemed like they wouldn't be achievable. And so this is just uh, an incredibly powerful time. Elizabeth, what strikes you as more likely, though, that we will adapt in the long term to the way we are presently having to live? Or will we arrive at a point, because as Eric was saying, this does not feel natural to us. And as he correctly points out, even people who live alone are generally actually pretty social creatures. Might we reach a point, indeed, are we reaching a point at which we're going to see pluralities of populations just say, this is no way to live. I'll take my chances. Well, I think we're already seeing that big time in the United States, although a lot of that, I think, is based on denial of reality. Arizona now is a COVID hotspot. I think people's eagerness to socialize indoors. Uh, remember, it's summer in Arizona, so most socialization is actually happening indoors where COVID spreads quicker. What we're seeing here is a gross failure of public policy and institutions which is underscored by a gross failure of leadership to organize the institutional capacity that exists and is not being used. So I wanna strongly underscore Eric's view that we're at a fork in the road here and we could see serious change in a progressive direction or we could just see the mass wreckage of institutions and imposition of authoritarianism. We could go either way. 
Well, let's take a look at how we might proceed down the more agreeable uh, of those forks, I guess. Uh, Iona, Eric was talking about the sense of community that did coalesce, especially, I think, in the early days of lockdown. Is there a way that that, you know, e- even if a vaccine was to be delivered to us within the next few months, is there a way that that can be encouraged, that that can be made to last? We will talk more about good citizenship a bit later in the show, but that thing in particular, is there a way that, for example, governments could do more to encourage that kind of organic community building? Yes, certainly. And I think it is definitely happening across the world. And particularly what is what is interesting to see that although people have, uh, in I know with the UK, people have just given up and many people have stepped out of the home and gathered in crowds. In India, the similar things are happening. Big crowds are gathering in different places. Although that is happening, I think there are coalitions being built. And uh, we have, I think, the very well-known case now from one of the regional states of Kerala, which actually went a very different path from the federal state. It didn't really go the path of absolute ubiquitous surveillance with uh, the COVID case. It went into partnerships and with tech activists, with coders, with doctors, with civil society groups. And it created pathways in which people were given the support and relief support that they needed. And here you have a very kind of intuitively different case of the state actually being the facilitator of particularly those kind of support and coalition building that is uh, intuitively you think that would be offered by civil society but they were not necessarily only with private sector they were also with a whole generation of people who had grown up in this India's new digital revolution and they were using their kind of tech for good ethos in working and and delivering these kinds of supports. I think across the world with various, these kind of low scale coalition building, very local, very contextual, that we need to really think of now in a post-COVID world in terms of how do we use these sorts of coalition building to scale up in a way that could become more normalized and they're not just exceptions in particular local context. I think that's something that we specifically need to think of. But also another thing I'd like to say is the notion of public space. I think we could be more supportive. And this is where I'm really concerned is what's going to happen to public space at the end of COVID. Because COVID is really the death of public space in the ways that social distancing norms happen. And what is going to happen to that is we really need to think very carefully about how we can provide support and a kind of come back to public space in the way that was always celebrated, but can no, no longer be done because of obvious reasons. Actually, Eric, on that, one quick thought from you before we move on to a more broader global view of this. How deeply ingrained do you think the idea of social distancing has already become? Coming into the studio just today on the Tube, which is not terrifically crowded at the moment, but you can kind of see people flinching when somebody sits down even two seats away from them. Is this going to take us a while to overcome, do you think? Is there any future at all? for the hug and the handshake? You know, I, I, I think there is. And I think that we have not given up on public space. And I don't think that public space is doomed. On the contrary, I see people who took public spaces for granted uh, beginning to recognize and appreciate how valuable they are and call for their restoration in some new and exciting ways. And in fact, how can we think about these demonstrations that have gripped the United States and many parts of the world 
if not as a reclamation of public spaces that were taken away from us during the initial stages of the pandemic. And so I share, you know, I'm, I'm in New York, right? And so I understand just how precarious one feels in public space at this moment, whether it's a subway or an, an, an indoor space that truly is dangerous. You know, we don't have a vaccine right now. We do not have terrific treatments at the moment. It is a massively dangerous virus that can hit people at all ages catastrophically. And that is a very scary thing. And so we have every reason to be very worried at the moment. But I do believe that when we develop uh, you know, better medical responses, when we have a vaccine, when we have treatment, once that has circulated and a lot of people feel better protected, we will rush back into public life. And I think we have an opportunity to, to rebuild. It's why I think we can go from here to something like a Green New Deal with a major public works programs that really remake our environment. And, and we need to do that because, you know, let's face it, the moment we hit a post-pandemic stage, we are squarely facing up to the climate crisis which is ongoing, and, and we can't really deal with it if we don't remake our relationship to all the spaces that we inhabit. Well, let's take a look then at what this might all mean for our hitherto globalised globe, because this year, of course, we were supposed to be enjoying one of the more benign reminders that we are all citizens of one planet, uh, an Olympic Games, the flame of which was supposed to be lit on July 24th in Tokyo. Instead, however, COVID-19 has furnished us with a rather bleaker reminder of how interconnected we all are. And anybody wanting a parable of the perils of globalisation could have asked for nothing more stark. It was the trade and tourism routes forged by globalisation that took COVID-19 from Wuhan to the world. Aona, is it possible, do you think, that we might look back on this moment years hence and think that this was a moment at which globalisation as an idea kind of reached a high tide? That's an interesting question. I think it is a very important event, but I think we've had pandemics before. And uh, if you look at the history of pandemics, particularly across the world, but also, again, in terms of how the plague or the bubonic plague worked out, they were very important events. They were huge catastrophic events in those times. And people did move on and people did find ways of living with disease or eliminated the disease. So I think, yes, yeah, certainly it would be at a very important event. But again, looking back on the Indian case, uh, India has had massive protests since last year uh, relating to a new citizenship act. At this point that it came was a very bad time to come, but it isn't the first time that catastrophic events have shaped India. It's a, a disease, but it's not an event that is so huge that it surpasses other events. And then moving on from here, I think there will be other things. I think in, in India and many other countries, actually, authoritarianism, is an issue that citizens from below are beginning to take stock of. And, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement is a very important movement. And what's happening in India is kind of coalition building with those kinds of movements. So we will continue to see events that are shaping our ideas of home and work and city and public life and all of that. And I don't think this is the first one or this is going to be the last one. Elizabeth, does it strike you that this is going to change the way that nations deal with each other, whether as trading partners or diplomatic partners or strategic partners? Because obviously what we saw at least early on in the pandemic was an awful lot of uh, retreating behind borders. Yes, I agree. I think there was 
for many years now already a rise in questioning about the roles of globalization because those roles have been written to favor capital owners and have come at the expense of millions and millions of workers. So that aspect of globalization, I think, has to be deeply reconsidered, the way in which even free trade and goods has been disrupted as each country hangs on to its masks and other protective equipment just for itself, notwithstanding treaties that require them to be open about exporting to their trading partners. It shows some of the limits of a purely borderless economy. But at the same time, there's other aspects of globalization which are quite positive. Whatever solution we arrive at for dealing with the coronavirus is involving the collaboration of thousands and thousands of researchers around the world. From a scientific perspective, there's nothing better than globalization because we need a crash movement and cooperation across the globe of everybody with expertise on this issue. Eric, on that thought, you mentioned earlier the other obvious and larger and more existential global threat, which is that of climate change. If we're trying to be optimistic about that, do you see that there's any prospect that that great international effort to find a vaccine or other means of thwarting this disease that Elizabeth referred to, is there anything in there that might be leveraged to address the climate issue? The potential is clear. And if we can tackle this, you know, as an international scientific community, if we can produce a vaccine and then share the vaccine across borders and make sure it goes everywhere for free or at a reasonable, very reasonable, affordable cost so that it can be delivered to people who need it, that would be an extraordinary model for how we can move forward on climate. And let's face it, climate is like COVID in that you can't simply solve it in the private sector. You can't solve it one nation at a time. Your fate is linked to the fate of your neighbors. Uh, it, require, it requires cooperation on a, a level that we've never done before. And I think one thing about this experience that we are having, whether people recognize that we're in the same boat or not, is that you know we have seen that the, the notion that scientists will come and just solve the problem very, very quickly because we have t- great technology and great minds and great engineering labs, that is a fantasy. Early action, coordinated action, planning, all of that stuff matters. And we did not do it with COVID. We did not do it with this pandemic. We ignored warnings for years and we even ignored the strongest uh, scientifically developed guidelines once the virus hit, we're seeing in real time just how consequential that is, you know, for our lives, for our livelihoods. And when it comes to climate, the same thing is operating. It's been on a slower pace, but it won't be for long. So this is a moment for a reckoning. This is a moment for us to, to leap forward. And if we miss the chance to take the lessons from COVID into the climate realm, uh, you know, we really are in trouble. Let's look finally at neighbourliness and cooperation at a more micro level and take a look at what COVID-19 might have taught us about being citizens, ideally good citizens, because especially in those bewildering early days of the lockdowns necessitated by the pandemic, there was a commendable answering outbreak of volunteerism, people signing on to hastily convene neighbourhood support groups to look out for each other, run errands for the vulnerable and so forth. Here in London, there were even reports of neighbours learning each other's names. 
names. Elizabeth, first of all, do you think that has lasted, is lasting, will last, or is there an amount of novelty wearing off? You know, I think neighborliness and mutual aid at the community level is a wonderful thing. It's not clear to me that it is going to last. The cash nexus is pretty powerful. Maybe if there was more public funding of these kinds of activities, public support for them, it could last past the pandemic. And it's quite possible, though, that climate catastrophes will bring about the same kind of mutual aid. There's going to be a lot of those coming up, and people will find themselves thrown back on their own local resources because of institutional failures at national and global levels. Could I just add to that, uh, you know, it's important to note, as historians in the United States have, that the origins of our New Deal, of the American welfare state, actually come from the Great Depression. And in the Great Depression, there were mutual aid networks. I mean, mutual aid networks is what we had before we had state programs to provide basic human security and social security. And they were activated in the Depression, but they were overwhelmed by the demands that the Depression placed on local communities. There's simply too many people uh, experiencing too hard a time at the same moment for the mutual aid networks to do all the things that they needed. And so the problem with them that generated uh, support for larger state redistributive programs that promoted equality, uh, justice, a kind of basic set of goods and services uh, for almost everyone, not everyone in the New Deal. And so I think that it is an extraordinary thing that these mutual aid networks have emerged around the world. Uh, It is important for solidarity. It's important for the social movement for justice to see these relationships build. It's the growing point for much more. But I do not believe that mutual aid networks are the way we're going to get through COVID or any of the 21st century crises and challenges that we face, we're going to need to transform the state so that it is more redistributive and so that we produce a more equal social world. Because the path we're on right now, and the path that we were on before COVID, is unjust and unsustainable. Iona, do you perceive any recalibration that might last? In cities in particular, it strikes me that there's a particular social contract that you strike when you become a citizen of any big city, which is that in return for participating in the city and contributing and benefiting and from it, you basically, I think the deal you agree to strike with everybody else is that you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. Is that sustainable, do you think, from now on, or or might that balance shift? I think it depends on which city you're talking about. Uh, I think what the question about neighborliness in the city contract is uh, very much to do with the Western context. If you look at many of the global South cities, particularly also, I think it's a class issue where if you if you go into some of the poorer neighborhoods, neighborliness and the kind of the social contract exists in huge amounts. Because when you are in such close quarters with each other, when you can hear conversations across and you are the only person that can be like a family to your neighbor, that that kind of support exists at all times. The city contract, again, I I think it depends a lot, and it's been said already, on these kind of smaller mutual aid groups, uh, which are burgeoning now, but which always already existed. I think a lot of these existing contracts have been redeployed towards support for COVID. But I, I don't see as many new emergences from what was there already. I think what's happened is several of the existing organizations have 
both redeployed but also recruited more volunteers and recruited them in specific quarters of support such as providing food to people who've been locked out or locked in to provide uh, relief uh, contacts between organizations, between people who are locked out and others, to also provide digital services to those people who don't have access to mobile phones and cannot register themselves around COVID infection and contact tracing. So you see all of that and the city contract as such, I don't see as you know a person saying, well, it's because it is our duty. I think people have kind of volunteered because what else would you do as a human than support other humans and, and when you were already there in similar situations? So I think it's it's very, very contextual. And you see a big difference between bigger cities, metropolises, and smaller cities as well. You see very huge differences between middle class neighborhoods and poorer working class neighborhoods. And so I think we can't really state it as a kind of universal nature of shifting contracts. I think you really have to look at local context about what exactly is happening there. Actually, on that thought, Eric, and this does seem like a pertinent question for a Londoner to ask a New Yorker, might some of us just have to learn to be not necessarily better citizens, but a different kind of citizen? Because London and New York, more than any other two cities I can think of, strike me as two cities which have reached that transcendent plateau above tolerance and have arrived at a position of indifference. It's basically, yeah, wear what you like, do what you like, think what you like, behave how you like. I don't really care. Just leave me alone. Are we going to be able to keep living like that? Well, you know, I I guess I just don't agree with the characterization. So I'm an urban sociologist and I look very carefully at how people live in cities. And I don't know London as well as I know New York, although I have spent a lot of time there. But you know, my view is that there is a kind of overclass of financiers and cosmopolitans who move in and out of places uh, with very little friction and who probably don't build real relationships, you know, that are deeply rooted in place. But that for the overwhelming majority of people who live in places like New York and London, social life is thick, civic life is fairly rich. There's a reason that New York is now one of the few places in the U.S. that has been able to flatten the curve and turn around on the coronavirus. It's, you know, it requires an enormous amount of cooperation and civility. You know, frankly, this is it's also a place that has been very progressive in its politics and redistributive. Now, the underside of that is that in London and New York, there is grotesque inequality. And there is a kind of class of people with runaway wealth uh, who I think are not fully engaging in the civic life of the city or the state. And I think the real issue coming forward is not about this kind of you know, everyday civic action so much as it is about the larger social contract. And this looming question now, after so much suffering, so much sickness and death, so much unemployment, is you know, are we finally going to do something about the horrible levels of inequality and about the unjustifiable, you know, massive wealth of a small number of people in these global cities. Because it seems to me like we really do need to rewrite the social contract. And until we do, people whose political response has been to say, you know, damn all the elites, let's burn the whole thing down. But, you know, they're not entirely wrong. 
Elizabeth, let's look finally then, as time is unfortunately against us, at what form that rewriting could take. By which I mean, I guess I'm asking, if all this was to end, say, next week, what's one thing we should really, as individuals and as a world, have learned from this? I do want to underscore Eric's point about extreme inequality. Inequality is rising in almost all countries in the world. And that's in conjunction with the pandemic, it's having brutal effects on those at the bottom of the scale. I think there is rising consciousness of this reality around the world. And, you know, people are going to take action. Countries that still have functioning democracies. That's, I think, the greatest grounds for hope for the future that we actually rise up and demand redistribution and uh, functional services that serve everybody and not just a tiny elite. That's all we have time for today. Thank you very much to our guests, Elizabeth Anderson, Aona Datta and Eric Klinenberg. There's much more to come on the Monocle Weekly Thinkers series. In the next instalment, we'll be taking a closer look at the nation state, politics and risk. Thanks to our producers, Augustin Machalari, Charlie Filmercourt and Louis Harnett O'Mara. Our editor was Maylee Evans and our studio manager was Louis Allen. From me, Andrew Muller, thanks very much for listening. 